we are now going to look at a story in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 16. You're thinking to yourself, last week we were in Genesis chapter 19, and we're working our way through Genesis, and this week uh, it's like three chapters forward, two steps back, right? Uh, let me explain. We are um, going through Genesis in pair with our Wednesday service. So each Wednesday service, we also look at a passage of Genesis. We cover Genesis 20. Actually, Kirk taught it, so if you, if you didn't make that service, I would love for you to be blessed by his teaching, get to know him through the teaching of the word in Genesis 20. And I had all intentions of looking at Genesis chapter 21 this morning, but what I realized at my reading of Genesis chapter 21 is that Genesis chapter 21 is a story of two mothers, the joys and the pains of motherhood. And so uh, I, I realized also that according to our culture calendar, that will be a great thing for us to look at next week because happy early Mother's Day, moms. And also I realized that one of the mothers in Genesis chapter 21 could use an introduction that uh, we did not get to enjoy in our Sunday uh, journey through Genesis because her story is introduced in Genesis 16. So uh, stay with me, the organizational brain that I have. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 21 next week, and one of the, the women in that story is named Hagar, who's introduced in Genesis 16. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Genesis 16 is, again, a story of these two women and the interactions that we, we initially experience through their story. The Bible tells so much about what we know about God and ourselves through story. That's what I love about the book of Genesis. It's the story of humans interacting with God. And this story specifically, uh, to get into it, I think maybe I can tell a story of my own to kind of set up what we're going to draw from this story in Genesis chapter 16. How many of you were around yesterday outside in Boise, maybe glancing through your windows and saw an extreme uh, windstorm and rainstorm come through? Most of you. I was outside in the park in Ann Morrison enjoying creation and the sunshine and like often happens in Idaho with the snap of the fingers, it was everyone running to their collective shelters, cars and bikes, and everyone was scattering. And on my way home from the park as I was studying God's word, I got home to find out that for many people, myself and my family included, how many of you experienced a small power outage because of that windstorm? Some hands go up. In my neighborhood, there was about 100 houses affected, and it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a simple fix for Idaho Power. They didn't just get to unplug and plug it back in or, you know, reset the router of the power, however that works. What happened, my neighbor told me, the uh, pine tree just a couple of streets down from me fell and knocked over the telephone pole completely in my neighborhood, and the wires came down, and there was trees on top of trees. So it took from 3 p.m.-ish to the middle of the night to fix. In that, I got a reminder of how much I take power for granted. <laughs> I, I got home, and my wife's like, hey, let's, let's cook some dinner. What do you feel like? And she goes to turn on the stove, and she's like, oh, yeah, we don't have power. <laughs> so you can't cook. And then I was like, oh, yeah, we don't have power. And I'm thinking through my day, and it's like, tomorrow's church, so I should probably get some clean clothes, throw some stuff in the wash. And I'm like, oh, yeah, laundry machines take power, too. That's right. And then it was like, okay, what, what should we do? It's like family time, Saturday night. What should we, you know, all the kids, no school tomorrow. Maybe do a movie night. And we're like, oh, yeah, televisions take power. 
and if you've ever had an extended power outage, you'll, you'll, you're with me in this reminder of all of the things you just take for granted and you go to turn on and you're like, oh yeah, that takes power and the refrigerator takes power and the stove takes power and the television and the, and the laundry machine and charging my phone. And all of these things take power and most of the time we never think twice about it. But when a power outage happens, you think it is so important for us to electricity. Without electricity, my house goes down. Driving home last night, it was like the whole, the whole neighborhood was just black. Why do I share that story before we get into our story this morning? There is a verse in the Bible that completely correlates to some of the stories in Genesis with Abraham and his family, and it's this. Hebrews chapter 11. It will be the thesis verse of our morning. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words... If you remove the element of faith in your pursuit of God, in your seeking of God, that you actually believe he's alive, he exists, he hears prayers, and you remove the element of faith of your relationship with God when he says, and you believe by faith that he rewards your seeking. This morning, he rewards whatever he wants to give you through his word, and then he says, believe it. It's my promise. It's as good as done. Here's my spirit, so it's a guarantee. When you lose the element of faith in God, it says it's impossible to please him. It's a good reminder for us this morning because we're doing a lot of things today in seeking him and even in expressions of belief in him that is almost taken for granted. There's many things we could do this morning in the worship, through song. You're listening, some of you taking notes very diligently. You're here, hopefully, to cultivate fellowship in the community of Christ. And yet, you remove the element of faith that you actually, in all of this, you, you, you do this because you believe God is alive and he rewards those who seek him. And none of this actually matters. Sermons don't matter. Songs don't matter. Church sanctuaries don't matter. You remove faith and it's like removing electricity to the house and you go to switch on lights and plug things in and it's like, oh yeah, there's no power here. And we start with that this morning from Hebrews because Hebrews 11 is actually overlaid from the writer in Genesis. Talks about Abraham. In his diligent seeking God, he's a man that is described as a man of faith. But when we study the man of faith, Abraham, and eventually the family of faith, Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, those who come to form this initial family of faith by which we belong, we also study the reality that faith is always tested. That there is something about the faith of man that is fickle, and it's small, and it's sometimes, it's like trying to grasp at the wind because it, it leaves our grasp so quickly. So this morning we're going to study, in, in a precursor to next week's Mother's Day, uh, two women who give us a story about faith that is tested. And I want to give you the outline that I have for you this morning because it really does set before us a truth statement when you put the outline together, which we're going to do. The first part of this story is Sarah questioning in herself the ability to fulfill the promise of God. Faith is tested. It's the first part of the truth. The second part of this story is the way that sometimes when our faith is tested, we try to help God be God, and we come up with plans, and we come up with schemes and strategies to go from faith that God has given us a promise in to the fulfillment where we meet God halfway, and that is the results of that seen in this outline is that the flesh fails. When you do that with your life, it is impossible to please God, and it is impossible to live the life in the spirit that takes you to life 
abundant, and joy, and satisfaction, and ultimately, the reward of the promise. So we have faith tested, and we have flesh fails. But as in all stories that the Bible presents before us, there is a reminder of the fickle nature of man and our faith, and the danger of our flesh, or in the, the Bible term for flesh is in our natural ability, in our, what we are capable in our own strength and ideas. But there is this constant reminder that where the, fe- the flesh fails, the spirit brings life. And for the purpose of our li- outline, it will say, God prevails. So we put it all together as one truth statement from this story. Faith is tested, flesh fails, God prevails. It's something that is worth studying in this story because this is your journey with Christ. This is your journey and your interaction with church regardless of your response. You will have a test of faith, initial faith, saving faith, cleansing faith, faith that keeps you going. You'll have moments in your life where you will fail And you will have reminders, invitations from the preacher, reminders from the word of God, reminders from the evangelist that you meet in your life that in the end, God prevails. Faith tested, flesh fails, God prevails. Let's look at the first part of this outline, which is faith is tested. This requirement to please God, love God, will be tested all the time in your life. And we get stories of that throughout the story of Abraham and his family. We, we see the testing of Abraham's faith when he initially goes into the land that he's promised, and it's a famished land, so he goes to Egypt, and what does he do? In Egypt, there's a king, and I have a beautiful wife, so my faith is tested, and I'm going to offer my wife so that he doesn't come after me. Uh, there's a faith that is going to be tested now in his wife almost in the opposite way. Look what it says in, in chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram, Abram's wife, Hold on to that phrase because the the author of this story is going to continually remind us that Sarai is Abram's wife. Sarai's born him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, Bible words for, I want you to make a baby with Hagar. The Bible says what? Last week's sermon. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Sarah's mind is, uh, if you and Hagar can form a union, almost a surrogate pregnancy, then we can take the child and our family will be formed and we'll take the child and it'll be the fulfillment of God's promise for us. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. So Abram says, okay, good idea, I'll do it. Verse 3, then Sarai, Abram's wife, again, we find a phrase, double emphasis of Scripture is telling us something, because we're slow of hearing, Abram's wife is Sarai, not Hagar. Uh, In verse 3, then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. The faith is being tested in verses 1 through 3. Faith is tested because of the promises that have been given. Wherever there is expectation, the promises of God setting forth expectation, there will be the temptation for our manipulation. And the expectation given to Abram and Sarah, to restate it, it's important not just to the book of Genesis, but the entire biblical narrative leading to the fulfillment of Christ, is that God is going to bless the whole world through this one man. He's going to call Abram, 
out of the land that he lived. He's going to bring him into a land of promise, which will eventually become Israel. And through Abram and his, family, and his wife, Sarah, he's going to bring a child that will turn into many descendants, and ultimately, the Christ will come through this family. That's the promise. It's restated in chapter 15, leading us to the faith that they are supposed to have in the promise, and now the testing of the faith. What's the testing? This, out, or this story gives us three ways that faith is tested, and in their challenges with the promise yet realized, your faith is tested in very similar ways. And a reminder this morning, God has given you promises, both as believers and as people who have come to seek him this morning with ears to hear. One of the promises is that God loves you and that God has sent his son into the world so that you would not die, but that you would have life. And he's provided a way for that life to live in you to his glory and to your joy. He says, I tell you these things so that your joy may be full. That's a promise of scripture. And it's a promise that sets an expectation that is not always clear in the moment. And so three ways that faith is tested for your promises, that God has created you in his spirit for good works, that you should walk in, that he's prepared beforehand, he has a call on your life, and when you're called and you love God, all things will work together for good. That promise sets an expectation that will be tested all the time. Three ways it's tested in Sarai's life, Abram's life, and that all of us will relate to over time. One, it's tested in our waiting. Two, it's also tested in our weakness. And three, your faith will be tested, this is the hardest one, in our wisdom. It's hard because wisdom is a good thing, but it's also a dangerous thing apart from God. So we start with faith being tested in our waiting. Look what it says built into the story. It says, now Sarai. That's a very important word that the author is saying, bring them up to speed, and now it still hasn't happened. The end of verse 3 says what? This plan was conceived and then executed. Why? Because at this point in the story, Abram's already been waiting 10 years. Abram, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have descendants. Look at the stars. If you ever forget, just look up, and you're going to see stars that you can't count, and that's your descendants. And Abram, the man of faith, believes God, and it's counted to him to righteousness, except for one small problem. There is the problem of patience in all of us. In the, in, the, in the realities of your life, whatever God has called you to, you have been called not simply to walk in the promises of God, but to wait on the promises of God. This story is a story that comes to us, and it says, 10 years, what do you do? 10 years of waiting, and now is the time where Sarai says, I think I'm done waiting. I don't want to wait anymore. I got some ideas, and I've got some plans, and I've got some good reason and logic to why I don't want to wait anymore. This is one of the challenges of the day and age that we live in. I think it's always a challenge because the, the Bible is full of reminders of the benefits of waiting on God in light of people crying out in the Psalms, how long, God, how long must I wait for your presence? How long until you deliver your people? Or for our day and age, how long before you return? Can we please get on with the headlines that are going to point us to the coming of Christ so that we can get out of here? Uh, we sense it. As the person who's, you know, going through the word, I, I, I get the uh, eagerness from you guys all the time. Like, when are we going to remind us that Jesus is coming and he's coming quickly? Amen. And yet, we are still waiting. 
We're waiting on the promises of God. And we wait in a culture that hates to wait. We, we, one of the things that so many people build their daily routine around is, a, is an application called Instagram. It's like, get it all right now. Look at your friends are doing this and all the motivation for that. And anything you want to look at is right in front of you. And it really is just a picture of everything that's instant. You guys don't have to wait for anything. If you wanted to get into Genesis chapter 16 and hear a sermon this morning, you could have woke up and said, uh, Alexa, play a sermon in Genesis 16. And it would have come on. It's everywhere. And it's not just a religious problem. There's all sorts of ways that God has created our bodies and our rhythms that require time to mature. And one of the ways that the internet shows us the depravity of our instant culture and the inability to wait is in the way that the, 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 the bodies that God has given us that now have been elevated to make all of us want to be gods and goddesses so that we can have beach bodies to share for our photo feed, they're available now. The design is that you, you grow into a certain stature and then based off a healthy work and rest rhythm, God gives you the body he gives you. But now it's like, okay, go through this program, and if you don't have the body you want right now, download Photoshop. <laughs> just get it. Just, just pull the center in and pull the middle out and bring a tan and brighten the teeth, and you can, have the, the, you can live in Instagram versus reality. It's a picture of ways that we struggle with waiting. But here's the thing. God has called all of us, every single one of us, into a lifelong journey with him with promises that will be fulfilled in his perfect timing. In the church calendar right now, we are living in between that, those bookmarks of Easter and Pentecost. And in between Easter, which we celebrated as, as death losing its victory, sin losing its sting, we now have a God that we know because the grave is empty is alive. And the disciples meet that God and he shows them the word and it fulfills all the prophecies of the people who were waiting for the Christ. And what do they say? Okay, is now the time to restore the kingdom of Israel? And what does Jesus say? It is not for you to know the time or the hour. It's built into his plan. That is under the authority of the Father. It's true of the disciples then, and it's true of us now. The time and the hour for the things that you're waiting for. And many of you come and you relate specifically to this kind of waiting. Waiting for a family dynamic. A, a relationship to form a family. A child to grow a family. A family member who's lost and you're crying out for the redemption of God to bring them back. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and here comes the test of faith. Why don't you just help God out? Why don't you just do it yourself? At, at this point, you've waited long enough, and that's what the disciples say. Can we, do, can we get on with the program? I'll sit on your right, and you sit on the left. And Jesus says this, to restore our test of faith now, and to prepare our hearts and minds for your challenge and your problem of patience. Your job is to wait for the power of the Spirit. If you go before the power of God in your life, the time of God in your life, to fulfill everything according to his perfect sovereignty, you will deal with failure of flesh. 
But when you wait on the power of God, the word and the promise that we cling to in the challenges of our faith is that he gives us the strength to commit to the promise. Here's a verse for us to be renewed in our waiting. Isaiah chapter 40. This sermon is going to be full of verses that you'll probably heard if you've been around any kind of church service. But Isaiah 40 is quotable because it's so needed because we struggle with waiting. Isaiah 40, verse 30. Even the youth shall faint and grow weary. This is not a problem necessarily of age. This is not a problem necessarily of time. It happens in a week. It happens in 10 years. And it happens to the young and it happens to the old. Uh, The young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wing like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait on God and you will be renewed. And every church age has a challenge of waiting on the power of the Spirit. Because when the Spirit comes, it comes in a mighty rushing wind and it fills the disciples with the power to go from being afraid of a a, a nine-year-old girl that was calling Peter out for for following Christ. And when he's filled with the Spirit, he's preaching on Pentecost and 3,000 get saved. And the difference is the power of the Spirit in him. You go without the Spirit and you walk towards the failure of the flesh. But when God moves according to his time, Pentecost was very sovereign in that timing. We're mounted up with renewal to actually proclaim the power of God to fulfill the promise. And so we have, in one way, the test of faith in waiting. The second way, it is the test of faith in our weakness. We see the example of Sarai in verse 1 again. It says, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Why? Remember when we were studying Genesis chapter 11 and we had a very seemingly plain genealogy given to us to introduce us to the family of Abram. And in Genesis chapter 11, there was a verse that should stand out to you now as we read this that said, in the genealogy, Nahor Nahor married this wife, Abram married Sarah, and Sarah was barren. It's setting the stage for who God called. It was not a mistake by God that he called a barren woman. And now we get, fast forward 10 years, and Sarah says, I don't know if God realizes this or not, but I'm barren. In fact, she she actually gives credit to God as a way to find a solution for God. Because it says in verse 2, So Sarah said to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me from having children. God's given me these limitations, so allow me to give God an answer for how to break through them. Because God has given me my limitations, why don't I just suggest someone on the other side of barren womb? Hagar. She sees young, vital Hagar. And she comes to Abram and says, I'm weak, but she's not. And this is one of the great challenges of faith for my life. I, I, I think anyone who's, who's been honest about the call of God in their life to really pick up a cross and follow him, you must struggle with the reality that God calls the weak things of this world. It's kind of a sad verse when you think about who God is after. God is not calling those who are wise in this world, established in this world, great in number and might in this world. 
But as he'll later say to the nation of Israel, I didn't call you because you were strong. I called you so that you were weak. Let there be no misunderstanding about where the power comes from and the people that God uses. He calls the barren womb. He calls the, the disciples who are living in fear apart from the power of his spirit in their life. And he calls each and every one of you this morning not to just encourage the things that you're naturally gifted in, in your flesh, but he calls you to be totally brand new, a new creation in him, to do things that you would never be able to do without him. He calls us in our weakness. He has specifically called Abram and Sarai in their weakness. And look what it says of his call on Abram from Hebrews chapter 11. He says, therefore, from one man, Hebrews 11, verse 12, one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. He called from one man a mighty nation and the one man was as good as dead. It seemed to be his qualification that he could do nothing apart from the miracle of God in his life. And yet Sarah, in the test of her faith, uses her weakness as a reason to manipulate the situation. And don't we all feel it? I will use myself as an example because I'm the one talking. I've always loved the picture of Moses as he is called from being a shepherd in the wilderness to, of sheep to go and be a mouthpiece for God to Pharaoh. And remember his response. He says, God... <laughs> I don't talk good. <laughs> Why would you have me be your mouthpiece? It was his way of saying, I think you have the wrong guy. And in so many ways, I say, almost weekly, as I open the word and think about proclaiming the grace of God, the love of God, the kindness of God, to bring people closer to God, I think, I don't talk good. And then it's a constant reminder that in my weakness, I seek God. And this is what the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of for all of us who are tested in our faith because God has called you not to do something hard, but to do something impossible, only made possible by the God of impossibilities. We get a test of faith that points us to God. This is what the Apostle Paul says of his own life in his ministry. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might depart from me. Uh, Paul had something in his ministry that bothered his flesh. It was a weak point in his life. There's many different interpretations of what that is. It might have been people that bothered him. It might have been an infirmity that just that kept him low. It, it might have been just the, the fear and the anxiety that he sometimes had to be talked through by the Lord. But whatever it is, he saw two things. One, thank God that my flesh cannot be exalted beyond what God has for me. Thank God that I have something keeping me so low that I continually cry out to God. We don't like those things because we kind of like to be exalted or, in other words, made comfortable. Stay inside the comfort zone of what you can do in yourself. But God, by his grace, calls us to be very aware of the weaknesses that he wants to strengthen. And that's the second aspect that Paul has for us this morning. He says, but God says, my grace is sufficient for you. God's undeserved covering of the weakness will get you through whatever the fear of failure is calling you to. 
because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He's made, his strength is made perfect. It's, it's glorified. In Abram and Sarah being the chosen ones in their age, as good as dead, to have children. And the third temptation of, of faith, or the test of faith, is wisdom. And we see the example of Sarai as she's living in the now, in the instant moment, to figure this thing out now. She's understood her weakness to the point of doubting the promise. And she's also got an incredible idea. It says, see, now the Lord has restrained me from being, bearing children. Verse 2, go into my maid. Perhaps she shall obtain by her children for us. And Abraham said, okay. That sounds like an idea. It's better than what we've been doing according to our timeline because what we've been doing seems to just be continually waiting on a God who is delayed. But Hagar might be able to solve the problem right now. So in our weakness and in our wanting to speed up the timeline, we come up with some pretty good wisdom, don't we? It's like, okay, like, look around. What could we do right now where we could maybe make some movement in our lives without really needing God to do anything. God has called you, he's promised you, but he's also a God that's delayed for some reason in your life. And so you think about the wisdom that you come up with these ideas and plans and strategies and here's a great idea. And I think about it in the church age that we live in because, man, there are a lot of ways to look like a busy, fruitful, growing church that comes from just really good strategy, to be honest. Uh, there are ways of wisdom that says to God, you say that your truth will endure from generation to generation, but uh, we're looking at the poll numbers, and it seems like the church is shrinking. Uh, you say that, you know, wait on your spirit and you'll renew our strength, but we look around and it's like we're all just kind of tired from these last couple years. Can, can, we, can we just get moving in our own wisdom? And so church strategies, let's go. Uh, let's, let's just preach a message that makes anybody that walks in the door feel good. At least we'd fill up the place, right? Can we just say things that are motivational and don't really have a ton to do with requiring you to pick up a cross and make a daily commitment to Christ because that wisdom is foolishness to the world. But we could grow if we kind of watered it down just a hair, a little bit, uh, is there a way to, you know, maybe raise some more money? I mean, think about what we could do if we were all, all in money-wise. It's like, geez, we could feed the hungry. We could eradicate the, 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 the housing crisis. Let's just all pull it in. Uh, so what we got to do then is I got to get really strategic about how we pass these baskets. We got to time it in the service right, and then I got to figure out how to give you some motivation that if, if you sow some, some seed money, then God will give you more than you could give. And there's all sorts of ways that faith can be manipulated to meet God halfway and say, God, you're not providing, so let me provide. And the worst example of this that I read about a couple years ago was uh, the call for us to to. to to bring people into the baptism waters, representing a loss of this world and a living for eternity. So it's like you, you, you call people a gospel invitation. But, man, could you imagine if you came to church and someone called and you're like, I don't know, this is awkward. I don't want to be the first one to go. Well, why don't we just put some people out that have already been baptized 
and they can just come first and everyone can watch them come down and it's like, oh, there's like 30 other people. I guess I can go now. And then those people will just do kind of a symbolic baptism and we'll, we'll, we'll really just count the ones that came. And it's like, I don't know what you do with that, Lord, but it seems like we're bringing some wisdom and strategy that is not waiting on the power of the Spirit to make a mighty wind in someone's heart that's an undeniable call to follow you. And that is the point as we look at the next part of this outline of all of the failures of our flesh. Here's the point for the church age following Christ. If it's not faith, it does not matter. It's impossible to please God, to honor God, to love God, to worship God, and live inside of these messy middles where the timeline's not God's because we've given up on waiting for him. And the wisdom isn't the Lord's because we're really just using our own strategies. And, you know, all of the things that we do in, in the, 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 the outgoing of the church, it's really just us. We're wasting our time if we are not trusting God in waiting, in our weakness, and in all of the wisdom that we say, it's foolishness to the world. We live in this upside-down kingdom that life comes from picking up a cross, and salvation comes from dying, And our king came not to eradicate the governments of this world, but to bring us a new heaven and a new earth, and it makes no sense to those who are perishing. And yet the word says, lean not on your understanding. Give it all to God, and he'll direct your steps. Be not wise in your own eyes. If it isn't faith, God doesn't care. And that will bring us to ways in our lives that all of us go through the test of faith with manipulation at times towards some sort of meeting God halfway that will turn into flesh failing and complication. It's like the first part is all manipulation and the second part is like when flesh fails, it's complication. And that's what we find in in verses four through six. It says, so he went into Hagar. It's like, okay. And she conceived. And and when she saw that she had conceived, meaning when Sarai saw that the plan happened and it worked, it says her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. And so Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to you as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar flees. The mess of the flesh. So this sermon is not just a fork in the road. And for those of you who believe, it's like if you want to please God, live by faith. If you don't want to be, please God, eat, drink, and be merry. It's without faith, it's impossible to please God. And whatever we do in our flesh leads to mess and complication. Look at what, what, what's played out as soon as the plan works. It was apparent that she's conceived, and all of a sudden, Sarah and Hagar have division among them. You almost get the impression that Hagar becomes kind of someone who's almost like, look what I can do. Look at this, and you can't. And I, now the child will come for me and not you. And that's going to happen because it wasn't God's plan. And now Sarah is frustrated in her own plan working. Ever been there? It's like I'm setting out. I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to start this business. And a year later, you're like, and it worked. I'm so mad (laughs) because this is not what I planned. 
And then you have Abram and Sarai. They've got their own frustrations. Look what she says to Abram. My wrong be upon you. Abram's like, what? (laughs) Why me? I, I was like, good idea, but... This is not a teaching, by the way, on husbands. Don't heed the voice of your wife, and if you do, they're going to blame you for the problems. That's not what this is, because we should listen to each other. The point is, in our unity and submission to one another, we're listening to the voice of God. And when trouble arises, it's not like Sarai is always the one blaming Abram. We just blame each other. That's what happens is that when you, you, you're, you're living in the corruption of the flesh and the deeds that it brings you, you're trying to make sense of the mess. And as humans, we make sense of the mess with our fingers. It's like over here is the problem, left versus right, versus Democrat, versus Republican, versus mass, no mass. It's like this is the problem. We get a picture of the opposite happening between man and woman in the story of Adam and Eve, very similar. God says, Adam, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? And what does he say? The woman that you gave me. It's like, I don't know who else to blame other than you and her. It's her fault, and you gave her to me, so I should be good, right? The flesh turns into complication. And then finally, we have Hagar, who it says was shamed by Sarah. She dealt so harshly with her that she fled from her presence. The test of faith, when we do not allow God's spirit to help us overcome, will turn into the mess of humanity. It's the story of Genesis 1 through 11, and it is the story of Abraham and his family. And it's worth pointing this out over and over again, because Abraham, father of faith, Abraham believed God, accounted to him righteousness, praised God for the hero. But the Bible is so clear, and we need the lesson all the time, that his faith is not without flaws. My faith, your faith, the faith of anyone who trusts in the completely faithful God will continually come back to the reality that we have flaws in the faith, but thank God, blessed be the Lord and Father of of all of our faith, the author and finisher of the faith, that he is the one who is without flaw. It's all pointing us to the reminder that it's not Abram, it's not Sarai. So that when faith is tested, and flesh fails, we get another picture of the God who prevails. And we need the reminder, because you're not being sent out to the world as sheep among wolves to make the Great Commission happen, make disciples, win your neighbor, and be expected to pitch a perfect game. This doesn't happen. You're expected to continually believe in the power of God to do what would be impossible without him. And so now we come to the God that prevails. Verse 7, now the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. I want to lay, outlay this outline one last time with some clear uh, things, observations that we get from each part of it. Okay, so we have test of faith, manipulation. We have flesh fails, complication. And now we have God prevails, and I want for us to know that the word that is in this, represented by Hagar, is 
Desperation. You show me someone who's desperate for God. You show me someone who has fled from the work of the flesh to flee and to find some sort of, of wilderness experience with God. And I will show you the God who shows up. The God who, it says, sees and hears the cry of the afflicted. And, and that is the missing ingredient for every generation, for every believer, as we get the tests of faith, as we want to please God by our faith. There is no middle ground. There's no meeting God in the middle to say, God, your promise says this, so let me help you the rest of the way. What God is after in Abram, in Sarai, and seen in Hagar for the purposes of this sermon, but in your life, is someone who will flee to find the presence of God. Desperate people for God. It is at the core of every great movement of God is someone who is willing to find God in their desperation. Hagar has fled the presence of that, the, out, the outpouring of the work of the flesh. And God asked her something very important. Where are you going? Where have you been? What an interaction to have with the presence, as it says, the angel of the Lord, most commentators say, by, based off the promises that will be revealed to Hagar and the care that is given to Hagar and the worship that Hagar gives, that this is the Lord himself. Where did you come from and where are you going? The God who prevails. She says, I flee, I'm fleeing the presence of these people who have oppressed me. Okay, where are you going? He then says, I want you to go back, and she returns and gives birth to Ishmael, who we'll look at next week. The answer is, as the question comes behind all of us now, as you desire, if it's in your heart, as you listen to this message, to, to hear this truth about the reality of our relationship with God, without faith it's impossible to please him. And you say, God, I, I want that kind of faith. Where did you come from? Some of us have come from a wilderness experience where we had nothing but God. And it's worth a glance back from time to time to remember the God who brought us back into his presence. Abraham, where did you come from in your lack of faith? I came from the land of my father's house where I was comfortable and secure and you called me into the promised land and I followed you and you provided. Where did you come from? You come from your own version of the work of the flesh that has taken over all of us that want to know God. In the moment that we cry out to him, it says, the Lord hears the cry. He is the God who hears and sees the cries of the afflicted. You came from your own version of the depravity of decisions outside of the will of God. If you know God, he's reminding you this morning, where did you come from? And the question is, where are you going where are you going, Hagar? She didn't have an answer. In, in your tension, in my tension, in my heart, I'm tired of waiting. I'm sick of my weakness. I, 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 my wisdom will have to work. Where am I going? Where is that going to take me? Where is your timeline for life? Where is your personal strength going to take you? And where are your ideas and strategies for life really take you apart from the will of God? Let me give the answer from Jesus. He says, the flesh, the natural man, will profit you nothing, but the spirit will bring you life. Hagar's answer this morning. Go back to Abram. And she does. The answer, I'm going where you tell me.
That's where I'm going. That's the leader. Where's the church going? We're going where God tells us to go. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to have your spirit in us to wait and then to move. Help us by your spirit to go where you tell us according to your wisdom, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but by your wisdom we go. Help us to go as you strengthen us in our weakness, wherever you lead us, no matter how limited we, limitations we feel. We are going where you tell us to go. Now, I've offered some potential applications for you to think about your waiting. For you to think about how to apply this on a personal level. And there is application for that. But if we're true to the fullness of the reality of what God had planned for this moment, we have to understand that God was doing something greater than even the specific story of Hagar and Sarai in this moment that they collided. Look what it says in, Genesis, or in Galatians chapter 4. Because God in his sovereignty allowed this to happen so that we would understand the temptations of our faith and how to overcome them by waiting on God. He also gives us a real-life living picture of a historical moment that he had with this group of people. But he also allowed it to happen so that we would have a picture of how salvation works. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son according to his time. He did it at the perfect time, when the fullness of his plan was revealed. After slavery in Egypt and wandering through the wilderness and the, and the promised land and the temple and the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple and the prophets realized to point to Jesus, it's time to send his son. And when his son arrived, we have a picture now. This is the son that was promised to the world. His son, born of a woman, but God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Adoption is a promise. It's not a work. What does all this mean? Bear with me. Now we get the picture of Hagar and Sarah. It says in verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a bondwoman, Hagar, the other by a free woman, Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh. Hagar was, was birthed out of a desire to help God through the power of the flesh. But he who was born of the free woman was born through a promise. These things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now, and is the bondage with her children. He says, Hagar actually represents Sinai, where we get the law. Hagar represents a desire to somehow birth life out of a commitment that you will meet God under the law. But the law is bondage. You won't be set free by the law. You won't be set free by religious good works. You won't be set free by, by working your way to somehow prove to God that he can trust you with the life that he has for you. But he said, but now there's another picture. Sarah was the one of promise. Sarah didn't work for her child. Sarah couldn't have the child without the intervention of the miracle of God to bring it according to his promise because every promise is yes and amen. And when he brought the promised child, that is a picture of how we are born again. 
We are born again, not by the flesh, working towards God, but we are born when God pours out his spirit according to the promise to save us, not by our strength, but by his salvation, and Christ is enough. The promise of born-again life. You can't work for it. You can't manipulate it. You can't meet God in the middle. The promise is I wait on God and God gives me his spirit and God empowers my life and God gives me wisdom that I would never have except for him pouring it out on my life. We're people of the promise. And for those of you who are not people of the promise, this is why we call it good news because my message to you is not a religious message of how you somehow come underneath the love of God. The promise is for you. The promise is to say, God loves you. He's provided a way for you to have life in his spirit. It's for anyone who believes in his name, and you'll be born again just like you were born a first time, and it can only happen by the miracle of God for you to cry out. And I hope some of you have been waiting for this moment, wondering about the weakness of yourself to figure out your own life, wondering if if your wisdom was ever going to figure out your life. The answer is the promise is for you. God has the power to bring you new life, to walk you in the power of his good works to his glory, and to bring you all the way to his presence in heaven. You just have to accept the promise. And for those of us who already believe, we're refreshed. It's like the test of my faith doesn't disqualify me. When I fall because of my flesh, God prevails. And so we hold on to this simple statement that's our outline this morning. Faith is tested, flesh fails, God prevails.